I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. This is Evidence for the Bible, Part 12. And here we are talking about how we got our New Testament, how we got the New Testament text, the the canonization, you might call it. We talked about the Old Testament last time, and that helps us out a lot for today, if you can recall that, or you might want to go rewatch the, the teaching on YouTube. But first things first, the most important issue, and we covered this before, the most important issue really is this. If there is a canon, uh, and by that I don't just mean a list, but an authoritative group of texts that comes from God, if a canon exists, then it exists whether man recognizes it or not. It may be sitting in a corner somewhere and nobody pays any attention to it, but yet there it is. There's a canon. There's a list of things that God has said that were written down. Now, if there's no canon, If there's no actual authoritative teaching from God, then it doesn't matter what books you cobble together. Those aren't scripture. They're not the holy word of God. They're not the Bible because there is no canon. So you can, you can change those, those books. You could add or take away. It makes no difference because either there is a canon or there isn't. And that's a really important starting point. Our starting point as we're at this point in our series, this isn't where we started in day one uh, of this series, but the starting point right now is there is a canon. There is a canon. And the question we have isn't, do we have a canon, but do we have it right? Do we have the right books in our Bible is the question. We looked at the Old Testament before, we'll do New Testament now. Now, if your starting point is there's no canon, well then no, we don't have it right. <laughs> right? If you start with no, there's no such thing as a canon of books from God, well then the New Testament's wrong no matter what books you put in it. Um, any book of groups, uh, book of groups, a group of books is automatically a lie if there's no canon. Now, I think prophecy alone, prophecy just by itself with nothing, nothing else to support it, just prophecy, that proves there's a canon because it shows that God has spoken. And that's why we spent the first 10 weeks in this series talking about prophecy as evidence for scripture, evidence that the God has spoken and that he has spoken not only in the Bible, but only in the Bible because there's no other text out there that can boast the kind of prophetic evidence that the Bible has. We looked at Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Malachi, you name it, and we answered objections along the way. As I gave specific examples of prophecy, evidence of the historical fulfillment, um, all that kind of thing. So um, those were just a sample. There's actually a lot more prophecy in the Bible than what we covered. We certainly haven't covered even a third of it or 10% of it, but we covered like a good representative sampling of prophecy. So that is not what we're talking about today. It's not, has God spoken, but rather, do we have the right list? That's the issue that we're discussing today. Now, the Old Testament is certainly canon because it contains this prophecy, and we already went into that. And then Jesus, he clinches it. He sort of becomes the, 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 the final proof of the Old Testament canon. And he's like that, that cornerstone between the Old and New Testaments pulling them together. And giving us the canon nature of the New Testament by fulfilling the old and then making the way for the new. I'll go over this in a little more detail as we go, but that's the basic idea. So this is why it was so important that the Old Testament ends and 400 years of nothing, as far as scripture, nothing happens. There was God did stuff, of course, but there was no new scripture. And then Jesus shows up. It's like you needed this big, long delay to show that this was all written well before Christ came. And this, this confirms it. It's like, yes, of course, Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy. Because if they wrote it five minutes before he shows up, well, 2,000 years later, you can't prove it was five minutes before, not five minutes after. 
but if it's written over 400 years before he shows up, it's not that hard to prove that it was written way before Christ came. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, a lot of our groundwork has already been done. When we look at prophecy in the Old Testament canon, um, and I'm going to build off of that and sort of launch from last time into this time. And the question we're going to ask today is, is our New Testament what it should be? Is our New Testament what it should be? And I'll give you a, a, a conclusion. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes, but not simply because yes, because yes, because faith, because yes, and faith and feelings. Now let's close in prayer. Like, that's not the point. <laughs> that's not the point. Um, let's tackle some issues because a lot of times people think that we got our New Testament, that this list of books that you have in your Bible from starting with, you know, Matthew going to Revelation, that those books came to us through a secret council of bearded gentlemen who hid in a smoky room and then they like decided what books would or wouldn't be in our Bibles. And this has been propagated by none other than the great scholar uh, Dan Brown, author of The Da Vinci Code. <laughs> um, Dan Brown. Uh, you should research into him sometime. <laughs> he said he wrote The Da Vinci Code as fantasy. It wasn't history, but he came to believe it was true. Nut. That's all I can say about that. Um, but but the, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff is made of a, of a specific council of a particular, there's been several councils throughout church history, but of one in particular. Do you guys know which council I'm referring to? The Council of Nicaea. This is the one, now you've heard me talk about Trent as I talked about that, especially when we were doing our series on Catholicism. But when I, when I say Nicaea to the world, and especially the YouTube watchers of the world, and YouTube's not helped us much on this issue, they think that the Bible was given to us or decided on at the Council of Nicaea. There were a bunch of books, like not only the, the 27 in our New Testament, but there were many, 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 many more. You know, there was, there was like 70 other Gospels and all these other writings. This is, these are claims I've heard made. And these bearded gentlemen in their dark, smoky room, they decided to get rid of these books and keep these ones. And that's how we got our Bible. So the trick is on you, you Christian, you fool. You read that New Testament and don't realize you're just reading old Italian white guys' bearded books. That's what you're reading. It's not really from uh, the, the authors it claims, that kind of thing. <clears throat> now, these ideas are really popular, but they are utterly, provably ridiculous and false. For instance, they're coming from the author of a fantasy book. This would be like J.K. Rowling, is that her name? Saying that she wrote Harry Potter as fantasy, but came to believe it was true. I mean, it's just silly. It's just silly. Uh, anyway, I'd love to talk about Dan Brown sometime, but I'll just give you one fact on Dan Brown. Dan Brown doesn't understand the difference between the third century and the 300s. As you read his books, he doesn't know that, he doesn't realize that when, the, when something happened in the third century, that was not the 300s. That was the 200s and the 4th century. And yet he's telling us what happened in those centuries. He knows what happened, even though there's no historical records for it. He knows it happened, even though he's not sure what century it was in. They're very interesting stuff. So these ideas are popular, but not true. I think one of the problems is critics tend to be completely uncritical of one thing, their criticisms. If something is anti-Bible, they believe it immediately with no hesitation. It's just taken on faith. It's against the Bible, taken on faith. It's probably true. But if it's for the Bible, criticism, criticism, skepticism, denial, unbelief, prove it, prove every little aspect of it, prove that the comma was there too. You know, it's like everything's got to be proven in detail. And <clears throat> I think that this is sort of a blind faith in anti-faith and that it's very unfortunate. 
They also have a myth of neutrality. This has not helped our discussion of how we got the New Testament. There's this myth of neutrality. Like, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to be the unbiased source of truth for you. There is no such thing as an unbiased source. There's nobody who's unbiased. And so what they really mean when they say unbiased is unbelieving. So if they're going to interview somebody about their opinions about the New Testament, they have to get an unbelieving scholar, a scholar who does not believe that God is as described in the Bible. And then they'll ask them their opinions on how we got our New Testament. They won't ever talk to believing scholars because that would be biased. Not recognizing that unbelieving scholars are equally biased, just in a different direction. And this, this has really done a lot of harm. So that even Christians sometimes, we try to quote people and we try to find secular people to quote. Which I think can be useful, but let's not act like secular means more wise or right or correct or unbiased. It's just that if a secular guy admits this, then you've got to believe it because it's helping my case. You know, that's the idea. Um, <clears throat> so, what's the reality? It was not in a dark room. It was not by a select group of old white guys. There was no central authority that gave us our New Testament at any point in time in history. There was no one centralized authority that said, these are the books, those aren't, end of story. That did not happen. In fact, the Christian church didn't have councils for the first 300 years because they were under great persecution, oftentimes hugely, deeply intense persecution, where they couldn't get together and have this giant public council and have these huge debates and stuff like that because you, you get together and do that, now they know where you are and they come after you. So they didn't have these types of councils. There was no authority in the early church except the texts themselves. They were the authority in the early church, and it happened organically. So it was impossible to have any authority to grab a hold of these texts and say, these ones, not those ones, because there was no central authority to do that in the Catholic Church. In, excuse me, in the Catholic Church. The real church, I wanted to mention the Catholic Church, because they will claim that they had this papacy going up until that time, but history doesn't support that idea. For that, I have my four-part series on Catholicism, <laughs> which is a whole other issue. So, as we talk about this, many people would start, and I'm studying the New Testament and how we got our New Testament. They start the story of the New Testament in the 300s. Dan Brown, that's the 4th century. <laughs> in the 300s, right? 300 years after Jesus, when they start looking at councils and gatherings together of different Christian groups who can now publicly meet and do that sort of thing. They'll even go into the 5th uh, century. Now, that seems unwise to start 300, 400 years after the events took place. Some people will actually go back to the 2nd century. They'll go back to these people, the early church fathers, they call them, right? Where there's some writings about the apostles and about which books they thought were this and that. And there's, it's in there. There's not a lot, but it's, it is in there. It is in there. We, however, today, <clears throat> we'll do that next week. We'll go into the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. This week, we're going to do the 1st century. Let's start with when it was written. Let's start with the text themselves. Let's start with the earliest evidence for the New Testament, which is actually in the New Testament itself. <coughs> so this is going to take us back today to the time when the apostles were walking the earth, when they were actually writing the books in question, and we'll look at the things that they actually wrote. This doesn't require that we assume that, that the, can the, the New Testament is the canon to prove that it's the canon. We're just simply saying that these, these texts were, as they really were, they were authoritative texts in the early church, what did they say about themselves and each other that would give us a clue as to what the church thought about them? Does that make sense? This seems like the most obvious thing to do. This is like the best starting point, but almost nobody does this. So, 
And I think it's because of their bias. They're so biased against the New Testament that they, they, they won't even look at it. They'll look at everything but it to try to prove that it's wrong. It's, <clears throat> it's unfortunate. So the real story is it wasn't a council. It was gradual. It wasn't at one event. It was like piecemeal. Um, it was, think of it the way it was written. The New Testament was spread out throughout the, the Roman Empire very quickly. I mean, letters were written to different cities and different places and different authors. And so you might have been aware initially, you might have, you might have known Luke and Acts, but you didn't know Matthew. You might have known Paul's letters, but you hadn't read what Peter wrote yet. And so slowly these letters got shared amongst the different Christians and more people became aware of the other things they hadn't known. So it happened slowly. It happened piecemeal, little by little. And they slowly gathered together the different texts that had been written that had this apostolic authority. And it was really, it was organic. It wasn't by any council. It was just sort of happened in the church. It just kind of happened. You know, the way that videos go viral, it just sort of happened. These texts just went viral. They just kind of spread through the church and were received and accepted and embraced as the word of God. So we'll talk about that. Um, Let me start with just our our reasoning. And I, I hope... I'm not moving too quick for anybody, although I probably am. But you can watch the video later. I find watching this kind of content more than once is, is the best way to do it, actually, to be honest. Because um, you pick it up so much better the second time. So the New Testament canon. Here's the general format. Here's the general, our logic, our reasoning as we approach it. Jesus, step one, Jesus was a real person. He's a real person. Now, if you deny this, you're, you're like off on the fringe of the fringe of the fringe if you're denying even the existence of Jesus, I don't really have much to say to you today except you're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs if you think this. Or you're just like a conspiracy theorist who just absorbs every possible conspiracy. Except the idea that someone's messing with you, which is the real conspiracy <laughs> that you haven't accepted. Um, Jesus is confirmed through not only the Bible, but also those secular sources that we, that we often are asked to refer to. <clears throat> so step one, Jesus, the real person, he had actual teachings. He said stuff out loud. He actually taught things, and the things that he taught are the authoritative teachings of Christianity, because our namesake comes from him. Like, if you're you're opposed to Jesus, you certainly can't be a Christ follower. You can't be a Christian if you don't agree with him. So Jesus is the foundation. He's the starting point. Um, I hope I don't have to try to prove this. Right? That Jesus' teachings, certainly his person and his teachings, are the center of Christianity. That's the very nature of, of our faith. Jesus speaks with authority according to those New Testament texts, those first century believers. They thought Jesus spoke with authority. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> it says here, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So Jesus is exalted as God. He's also exalted as the the old message came from the prophets we read about in the Old Testament. The new message came through the Son. So here's a paralleling of Jesus' teachings with Old Testament prophecy, which we already know from last time, they believed this was canon. This was scripture. This is what God spoke. In John 12, 49, we have it in Jesus' own words. In Jesus' own words, John 12, 49, he says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And you can read similar statements all over the place from Jesus, 
where he's claiming to speak from God. Now, when you claim to speak from God, this is the same thing as saying, I'm declaring the holy statements of God. I mean, it doesn't get any more lofty than that, right? John 8, 28, John 8, 38, John 12, 50, John 14, 10. These are all similar statements from Jesus to do these types of things. Now, in Matthew 28, Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus also claims to have this kind of authority. He says, and it says, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In case you thought all meant something other than all there. It's like in heaven and on earth, I have all authority end of story period. I'm speaking from God, the father. I'm speaking the things he says, just as Hebrews says in times past, it was the, it was the prophets. Now it's Jesus that he speaks. And this is, this is the foundation of Christianity. This isn't a later development, three centuries later. This is right at the very beginning. And I should state just up front, because I'll make more cases for this later on down the road, as your case for the Bible here. But all the New Testament texts were written by the end of the first century. So this is first century Christianity, for sure. Now, the Old Testament actually predicted this. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18, verse 17. And actually, verse 17 through 19 for my PowerPoint people. Over there. Deuteronomy 18, verse 17 through 19 says, And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. The you here is Moses. And I will put, and will put words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Notice whose words are being spoken by this prophet. The, right? God's words. Whoever will speak my words, he will speak my words. Whoa. And I'm going to require it of them. It'll be like Moses. In fact, what did Moses bring to the people? The scripture, didn't he? And so here we have a, a future prophet. And then we read later on in Deuteronomy that that prophet never came. And we talked about this when we talked about prophecy for Jesus in that one uh, video series on just a bunch of prophecies Jesus fulfilled. And um, the idea here is that Jesus is that prophet. In fact, this is who he claimed to be when he was walking the earth. So this is, this is actually all consistent, right? From the Old Testament scripture, the proven scripture, we have this idea that there'll be a coming one who will come and he will speak just like Moses. He's going to bring us the words of God. Now you might be saying, okay, but Mike, that's Jesus, but he didn't write any of the books of the New Testament. And I'd say, yes. Yeah. So that's, that's why we have here the next issue, which is that Jesus had apostles. He really did have apostles. And these apostles became his spokesmen. Even while he was walking the earth, he sent them out with authority to, to declare the things he taught them to others. Even their existence is verified in extra-biblical sources, which, again, if you're going to doubt their existence, then you need to watch a different video series called Common Sense. Um, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> it's just silly some of the things people doubt. I mean, prove to me that I'm even here. I just like when to poke them in the eye. When they say, ow, I'll be like, well, it wouldn't have hurt if you weren't here. Um, yeah. But not to mention the New Testament documents. I mean, the scripture that we have in our New Testament, it records the history and the experiences of so many of these guys. They weren't fabricated. They're historical sources. Some people treat the New Testament like it's not even a historical source. I mean, they'll, they'll read some pagan document from 100 years later and take it as authority. When it's in, And that guy believes in all kinds of weird paganism. All kinds of weird stuff. They'll take that as authority and then they'll, they'll deride the New Testament like it's not even historical. Like when we hear about Erastus, the treasurer of the city. Oh, he couldn't have been the treasurer of the city because it's all myth. 
until they find you know find it written in stone that Erastus was the treasurer of the city, which is when we get to archaeology, we'll talk about that one. <laughs> some neat stuff, some neat stuff. So we'll do that more later on. But in John chapter twenty, verse twenty-one, we have Jesus commissioning the apostles. So he has we have Jesus; he's the authoritative speaker of Christianity, what we believe. Then we have his apostles who are commissioned by him. So John twenty twenty one. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Think about that. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And he came out, this authoritative teacher of truth and proclaimer of the new, the new message and all this sort of thing, the fulfillment. In Acts chapter 10, verses 39 through 43, told you we'd be moving quick. Here's another, here's another passage. It says, and we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Notice this verse 42, right? He commanded us to preach to the people. So Jesus commissioned his apostles. This is, this is what we have as our historical sources. He had apostles. He commissioned them to be his teachers, his, his spokesmen in the world. In fact, that's what the word apostle means. Apostolo, I send out. And I'm an apostle, well, then I'm one who is sent out. That's the idea. That's what it means. So, step one was Jesus is a real person who, who had real teachings that are the center of Christianity. Then, then this moves to the next step. Step two is this. The apostles spoke with the authority of Christ to the church, and they established the rule of what Christianity is and what it isn't. What we're supposed to believe and how we're supposed to live, it came through the mouth of the apostles commissioned by Jesus. So I'm going to give you some scriptures to support this, some, some, which I'm not having to quote, although I fully believe in the word of God. But, but even if they're merely historical records of early Christianity, they affirm what I'm saying. That's the point. Uh, 2 Peter 3.2 says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Notice this verse. It groups the commandments of the apostles with the prophets of the Old Testament. Like they're on par. This would be considered very bad if you didn't consider their commandments to be right on par with the prophetic statements of the scriptures. Let me read it again. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, tying their authority to his authority. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it says this. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, so if the Old Testament was true, that's in context what he's saying, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? So it, Jesus started speaking it, and then the apostles, they came and they fulfilled or finished that message. So this message is up here on par with the Old Testament. In fact, there's a warning. Man, if you go against the Old Testament, you know it's coming down on you. How much more if you go against what Jesus said and what the apostles confirmed to us? Do you see the environment? There's no, there's no doubt here that the apostles speak with authority and that they declare to us the message of God. 
2 Thessalonians 3.6. 2 Thessalonians 3.6, it says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now, this is not to say that this somehow becomes a case for um, Catholic tradition. Um, there's a claim that every doctrine, this is the, uh, the claim of the Catholic Church, official belief that every dogma and doctrine that the Catholic Church has defined over the years was really apostolic tradition that was simply not written down and that they've sort of known. Except that when you look at history, there's, there's things that are obviously novel, totally new doctrines that weren't believed in the first several centuries of the church that came much later. So that, that can't be supported. This, this is saying the things that you heard from us, you keep those. We're commanding you by the name of Christ that you keep these things. So this, this, is, this is spoken with the authority of Christ and that you don't even walk with anybody it, you can get excommunicated in the, in the Christian sense, disfellowshipped, if you reject the things that we have communicated to you. So now, of course, I'm talking about the, the spoken word of the apostles, right? That's, that's all I'm talking about so far is the things that they declared. In uh, Luke chapter 1, we have reference, uh, a reference to them being ministers of the word. This is interesting how that refers to them as ministers of the word, um, so that they're proclaiming the the statements and the words of God. <clears throat> in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, give you some more scriptures here, verse 13 through 15. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So this is a reference to what? Apostolic teaching as being the word of God. Right? They got it from Jesus and they communicated it and shared it with the people. And that is therefore the word of God. This is, this is what was believed at the time. And I believe it now. Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20 says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now as you're reading Ephesians 2, you might miss this. But because we're in this study right now, hopefully it jumps out to you. Apostles and prophets. Apostles and prophets. Apostles and prophets. And this becomes later on, we'll look at it next week, this phrase apostles and prophets becomes important in the church later because they look at the, uh, the, the scriptures of the Old Testament and then the apostles and they're sort of holding them together as being equally authoritative. Apostles and prophets. In Jude chapter 1 verse 3, we get a really interesting scripture. It says this, Contend earnestly for the faith which was delivered once and for all to the saints. Now, you can do your own word study on this. Whenever you have the phrase, the faith, it's not referring to personal belief. It's referring to a list of teachings and doctrines of Christianity. So faith is, I really, truly believe and trust. The faith is like Jesus came, God in the flesh, died on the cross, rose again on the third day. That's the faith. It's the things that we believe. And it says to contend or to fight earnestly for the faith, which was delivered once and for all to the saints. So in Jude, we're getting the idea that this apostolic teaching goes out and then it's, this is the things that we believe forever and it was delivered how many times? Once. And it was for who? It was for all. Why am I not expecting more scripture to be written next week? It was delivered, past tense, once and for all. That's it. I'm not expecting any more. The, the Old Testament ends with like a comma. We're waiting on more, more, more. Where's that prophet that was going to come like Moses? 
the New Testament ends and we're just waiting for Jesus. <laughs> we're not waiting for more scripture. We're just waiting for him to show up. So what the apostles taught is forever the foundation of Christianity. Their teachings are what Christianity is. If, if Christianity exists at all, it's what these guys said. This is, this is evident. So Ephesians 2.20 says this. It says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the, being the cornerstone. Uh, excuse, me, excuse me, I had a duplicate there. I don't know why I shared that verse with you again. Except because it was totally the Lord. There was the Holy Spirit using me, and you really needed to hear that again, right? Of course, I'm just spiritualizing my mistakes. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 and 11. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, Paul speaking, as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul went out and he preached the truth of Christ, and he preached the things we read about in the New Testament. And that's the foundation, and none other can be laid. Now you can build on it, grow in Christ and learn and follow Jesus and I can come to the church and I can I can but I can only echo the same foundation to you. I can't build a new one. There's no new Christianity that's going to show up with different sets of beliefs. We must build on that that foundation which is Jesus, which was laid by Paul and we have his teachings here. So what they taught is is Christianity. That seems indisputable. Some people pretend that Christianity is whatever you want it to be. Christianity is like the chameleon. It's like, I mean, it's anything you want it to be. Gnostics did this in the second century. Mormons, they do this. They're, oh, Christianity, it's, it's, it's what we say it is. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, your average everyday American that has their own sort of edited version of Jesus. Jesus is that really nice guy. He wouldn't, he wouldn't break a bruised reed. But he also wouldn't overturn the money changers' tables and bust out a whip in the temple. He would never do that. Jesus, he was only mean to Pharisees. And by Pharisees, I mean not me. <laughs> but like when you read the text, this Jesus who defies the modern American idea of Jesus jumps out the pages at you and you're like, wow, this is, this is who he really is. Like I don't, I don't get to reinvent this stuff. It's irrational to think that Christianity is anything other than what was taught by the apostles. Like, this is it. Jesus comes. He's a real person. He has real teachings. He has true, truly has apostles who he commissions to carry those teachings to the world. That's the foundation. That's what Christianity is. Many quotes from other later church leaders, they agree that apostolic teaching was the most important thing when figuring out what they were going to call scripture. It was, was it apostolic? Does it trace back to the apostles? Because they were commissioned to carry this message. I like, uh, I'll just read one quote to you. We'll look more at this next week, but here's one quote from First Clement, which is written about 95 AD. 95 AD. First uh, Clement 2, verses, uh, well, I think, I think it's verses 1 and 2, although my text doesn't say it here. The apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ was sent from God. The Christ, therefore, is from God, and the apostles from Christ. The Christ is therefore from God and the apostles from Christ. So they saw this, this, this natural carrying of the message, of this authoritative message. So have I beat that enough? Have I, have I proven that point enough that I shared enough scriptures to make it evident that in the first century, in the very beginnings of Christianity, this was known. This is the way it is. These are the things they never talk about when they talk about how we got our canon. They go straight to the third century when people start wearing weird hats. You know, they just go straight there. They don't, they don't come here. All right, step three. That was, the first, that was only two steps. <laughs> Step three. The apostles' writings 
what they wrote down carries the same authority that they did. That's our three-step case. The apostles' writings carry the same authority that they did. It's natural that they would write these things down at some point. Wouldn't you? You can only be in so many places at once. Some things, teachings needed over here, teachings needed over there, and you can't go all of those places. So you eventually start writing these things down. The written words of the apostles couldn't be less authoritative than the things they said. Could you imagine? I mean, here I am. I have some authority here as a pastor at our church. And if I was like, all right, everybody, we're going to do this. But then I said, you know what? I'm not going to tell them out loud. I'll write it down. All right, we're going to do this. And you look at the paper and you go, you know what? I know this is from Mike, but he wrote it, so it doesn't count. Like, what, are they less authoritative? Yeah, that's what some people seem to think. In fact, the written words of anybody are usually just an even more careful telling of what they think than even the spoken words are. Plus, it's a record that's permanent. It's a permanent recording of the things that they have shared. So it becomes really valuable. Now, the New Testament records that this is the reason why it was written. It was to combat heresy. We read books like 1 Corinthians, Galatians, to combat, combat heresy and those types of things, to bring a sure message of the actual gospel so that nobody could be deceived on these issues, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or to bring just a special revelation from God that was meant for all the church, like the book of Revelation. That was what it was meant to do. And they knew it. They knew that what they were writing, I think they knew it was scripture. Um, at least some of them did, and I think it's fair to figure if some did, and the others likely did as well. But Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he starts off his gospel and he says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, when you understand that word gospel means absolutely authoritative, everyone's accountable for this truth, <laughs> that's what gospel means, really. Then when he writes the beginning of the gospel, he's making a claim there to be teaching you authoritative from God information. That's what he's claiming. In John 20, verse 31, it says this, But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, uh, excuse me, that believing, you may have life in his name. So John 20, he's saying, I'm writing this as a basis for your belief as Christians. This is written as, here's what Christians believe. Not just Here's a nice letter I wrote. Some people, they think that the New Testament was gathered together and the apostles were like, well, gosh, I didn't ever mean for you to use that as scripture. Like, and they would be shocked to know that we have, we have joined it with the Old Testament as scripture. But yet, here's the testaments, uh, the, the scriptures themselves, the writings are telling us otherwise. Not only that, but John not only says, this is the basis for Christian belief, but he says, and if you do believe it, you will have eternal life. I mean, can you have a stronger claim? <laughs> you just believe what I wrote here, you'll have eternal life. That's a pretty strong claim. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, we read, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Uh, tradition, of course, here, it shouldn't be taken to mean all the things that it means in Catholicism. That's completely, um, was anachronistic is the term, when you import modern opinions into ancient ideas. That's just not there. But rather... He says what? Whether by word or our epistle. In fact, tradition, that word to them would, would, would mean anything I said to you or wrote to you, even the writings would be considered part of that tradition. So he goes, what? Stand fast and hold those traditions. Don't let go of them. Brethren, these are essential. You must keep them. You must not let go of them. Whether we spoke them to you. Now, we don't know what they spoke to them. But what do we have? What they wrote. 
the permanent record, which we're told to hold fast to. And the, and the writer of it knew that and asked us to do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in case you haven't heard enough scripture yet, verses 37 and 38, it says, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone's ignorant, let him be ignorant. Whoa. He straight up says, I'm writing to you the commandments of God. Where does the Bible say this is the Bible? Right here. Right here and in all these other various places I'm reading. Um, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I want to show you lots of different places where the New Testament claims this. Because other books we'll look at starting next week don't make these claims. They don't make these types of claims. They don't see themselves in this light. Revelation 1, 1 through 3, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, so it claims to be from Jesus, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. It directly claims to be the written word of God, and it offers a blessing on him who reads and him who hears. And yeah, there was a lot of illiteracy back then, a lot, but what they would do is they'd get together and there'd be a reader and everybody else would listen to it. So they still were in the scriptures all the time. In 2 Peter 3.16, we have a really great passage <clears throat> about Peter writing about Paul. And it says, and this might comfort you, it says that Paul writes a lot of things that are hard to understand. <laughs> this is true. The Bible's not all easy to understand. Definitely some challenging passages, and I like that personally. I'm really excited about that. If it was all easy to understand, I would be a little, I would, I would think, I'd be, I'd be bummed out. <laughs> I want to be like, hmm, you know. All right, 2 Peter 3.16. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, and there's this all-important phrase, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Wait, so Paul's writings are part of the scriptures? Yes. In fact, if you'll notice, he includes all Paul's epistles in that category. In all his epistles, as they do the rest of the scriptures. So Peter affirms Paul's, not only his apostleship, right, but his authoritative writings as being scripture, even while they're both still alive. That's powerful. Even if you thought that this was just merely a historical text, and, oh, Peter didn't even write it, and it was written later, yet it is a strong church document, right? I mean, this is, this is a Christian document, and it shows that there's an atmosphere where Paul's writings are believed to be Scripture. And notice this. Is he building a case to say that Paul's writings are Scripture, or is he just assuming it and assuming everyone knows it? It's just assumed. Like, it's just, like, duh. Like, everybody knows that. You just assume it. Interesting. Now I want to look at a passage we read earlier. It's in the same chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3. But I want to read it again, verses 1 and 2. Beloved, now I write to you this second epistle, we read part of this, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So again, we have the apostles and prophets. I'm writing you here, right, to give you a reminder of the things that I have commanded you so that you'll always have this permanent record of apostolic teaching, which is authoritative in the church. That's exactly what the New Testament is. It's what it claims to be. 
So this context, interestingly enough, is where he also addresses Paul's writings as scripture in the same chapter. He talks about his writings as, as being that and then Paul's writings as well later in the chapter. Now let's look at another passage. This is, this is neat. All right, so hopefully you're still awake and alert. 1 Timothy 5.18. This is one of those uh, very important passages when it comes to this. It says, for scripture, for scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. I was talking about the idea that those who uh, basically are full-time ministry that they should be provided for, they should live off the gospel as well. Um, but, but look at what he says. You shall not muzzle an ox. That's, he's quoting the scripture here, right? Now that's from Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, which says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. The idea here is, you know, you, you, act, you put a muzzle so that the ox can't eat the food while it's plowing through the field. And God's, he's humane. Uh, although I should say maybe humans are godly. Maybe that would be a better way to put it. But, but he's like, no, let the, let the ox eat and, you know, eat some of the grain while it's plowing the field. It's just, it's just cruelty not to. But then the second quote, which is also called scripture, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Does anybody know where that comes from? He's quoting Jesus. And more specifically, he's quoting Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 7, where it says, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. And it starts it off by saying, for scripture says. So here, 1 Timothy is quoting Luke as scripture. And notice this, a lot of smart people have done the homework for us on this. This isn't some other book other than Luke. This Greek is word for word identical to what it says in Luke. It's Luke being quoted here. Word for word identical. Some people have hypothesized other sources that we've never found. Well, this could have been from a group of sayings of Jesus from some other material. This could have been, could have been, could have been. And they're hypothesizing because, gosh, to support Luke, it, it leads you to what? To conclusions that are obvious. I like uh, that quote from Scrapeshire. Scrapeshire? <laughs> Shakespeare, who says, The lady doth protest too much, methinks. Sometimes I think the critics protest too much. They don't even want to admit that like Luke was seen as being scripture right away. But yet, it obviously was. I like the way uh, one theologian, John Meyer, put it this way. He says, The only interpretation that avoids contorted intellectual acrobatics or special pleading is the plain, obvious one. First Timothy is citing Luke's gospel alongside Deuteronomy as normative scripture for the ordering of the church's ministry. Notice again, 1 Timothy is not making a case for Luke being scripture. It's just assumed. There's no argument here. There's no, there's no, none of that. It's just, this is just how it is. Luke is seen as scripture, quoted as such. And everybody supposedly knows this. Now, there are many other verses that we could quote for this. Um, but there seems to be that in, this, in, in the New Testament and in the first century church, there was what we might call a canon consciousness. There were no official lists out there. We don't have an official list of which books belong and which don't. But we just have a, we have a lot of affirmations of books affirming one another or claiming to be canon that we find in our New Testament. And this is all positive case for us taking these specific books that we read in our New Testament that we call a canon consciousness. And there's a lot of other scriptures I could quote, but what I would like to point out next is, um, let me see how much space I got versus how much time I've got. All right. There, there, um, the idea of reading scripture is a, is a strong Jewish idea. Like you would read scripture in the synagogues. 
And so when we read in the New Testament, the idea of them reading these epistles or reading these texts and being told to read them, like in Revelation or in John or, or in other texts, that's a strong case for them being presented and treated as scripture. So not only do they claim to be it, but they're also treated as it, and they recognize each other as well. So Colossians 4.16, it says this, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Which some, some people think might be uh, the book of Ephesians. But, but here we have Colossians 4.16, this idea that this is just going to be read amongst you, and I want you to spread it out. It's supposed to spread through the whole church and just read, be read through them and to them. In 1 Thessalonians 5.27, there's a command in the name of the Lord to read it out loud. He says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Everybody needs to be reading this. Everybody needs to be aware of it. In 2 Corinthians 10.9, it speaks of how well-known Paul's letters were at that time. There's a lot in that verse, but there's a reference to basically how well-known Paul's letters were. Everybody knew about Paul's letters. It's just, yeah, everybody knows that. In Revelation 1.3, which we read earlier, remember it had a blessing on those who read and those who heard? So it's being treated as scripture. That's a very Jewish thing. It's a very Jewish thing. So a common mistake that I'm trying to, trying to deal with here in our first thing on how we got our New Testament is this. A lot of people look for a council three or four hundred years after Jesus to give them the scriptures instead of looking at the organic reception of the scriptures into the church. It just sort of happened without any one person controlling it, which is interesting because it's the same way it happened with the Old Testament. It follows kind of that same pattern. They just sort of received it organically over time. I think that it could be said that this apostolic teaching based on Galatians uh, chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 may be even more authoritative than the apostles themselves once they've declared it out loud or wrote it down. Let's read this and think about this. If you had a, if you had a choice between Peter and what Peter wrote, Paul and what Paul, Paul wrote, which one would you pick? Well, he answers this. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you've received, let him be accursed. So that the, the message takes more authority than the messenger once it has been delivered. And so we have that. And, and I think that that's, this is actually a great Sola Scriptura verse, if uh, you're looking for one. <laughs> um, there's one difference between what the apostles said and the writings that find their source in the apostles. The writings are permanent. And we have the writings today. And so this becomes our access to the teachings of Jesus and to the authority of the apostles that he set up and gave to the church. So the true early church is seen here in the first century. And we'll go into the second century, third century. We'll talk about councils and stuff like that. We'll get into those things next week. But you've got to start here. And nobody does. But you've got to start here. Or very few people do. I'll put it that way. And look at the texts themselves. And from here, you probably already feel fairly bolstered in your trusting in the New Testament because you see the internal consistency of it and that sort of thing. And we'll get into that. We'll talk next week about individual books. We'll talk about how there was a core canon of like Paul uh, and, and the Gospels and then how there were some books that were discussed and debated and all that. We'll be very open about all that kind of information. But we'll we'll start here and then we'll move on to those other things. Um, then we'll look at um, eventually other New Testament evidence and things like that. We're going to this is going to be a long series and I'm excited about it and I hope you guys are blessed by it. I'm trying to equip you with the um, slightly longer versions of these explanations than what we usually hear. Usually it's like just one sentence would summarize everything I've told you tonight. Um, 
but I want to I want to give you more data than that, more information than that. And I want to put it up online and have it available so that people can hear and see and know these things and respond to them and react to them. I think it's valuable. I, I wish there was just a thousand more pastors doing the same thing so we could just get it out there further and more. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the confidence we can have in the scriptures. And I mean, in reality, those who just simply, they just trust the Holy Spirit and take it on your word that this is the scripture, they, they're in great shape. But Lord, because the word of God's being attacked, because it's being attacked publicly and all over the place, we want to have a defense ready. We want to have answers ready for people who ask those questions. We want to be able to even just point them to a video that, that, that might have those answers. And so we pray that we could be um, uh, those who walk by faith, Lord, but also who have good, good responses to people who have hard questions, Lord, uh, to give them an answer, a reason for the hope that is in, in us with meekness and fear, Lord. And so we pray for your strength this week. We pray that you'd help us to set our sights on Jesus and live every day unto you. Lord, tomorrow when we wake up, that we would begin by being spiritual, getting in your word and praying, spending time with you, Lord, and that we could stay focused upon you through the day, doing whatever we do unto you and for you. We, we ask, Lord, that you would keep reminding us of you and of your goodness and of your calling on our lives, Lord, so we could just be found faithful Christians, faithful followers of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.